crush your enemies. They drew first blood, not me. See them driven before you? Oh, my user. And they hear the lamentation of the women. But I pity the fool. Glitter in the dark near the ten hours of gate. Phone home. They're here. Oh, real light sleeper, child. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing The Aftermath, released January 1st, 1982. It was written by Steve Barquette, based on a story by Barquette and Stanley Livingston, directed by Barquette, and produced by the Nautilus Film Company. In 1973, nine years before its release, 23-year-old director Stephen Barquette and his close friend Stanley Livingston sat down to write the story adapted into the aftermath. Livingston was at that point set to direct the film. Their partnership was dissolved after prolonged difficulty financing the project, but Livingston remains in the final cut, occasionally providing ADR for Larry Latham's astronaut character Matthews. Next, Barquette approached stop-motion animator and visual effects artist Jim Danforth about a partnership, but disagreements over creative control split them up as well. And again, Danforth stuck around to appear in the film as Williams, the radio operator astronaut on the space shuttle where we start the film. Danforth also provided the film's poster art, but not, as I suspected, the matte paintings within the film, provided, it turns out, by Robert Skotak, who plays a mutant in the film, and is also the brother of cinematographer Dennis Skotak. When Barquette finally locked in a financier, producer Ted V. Mickles, he was offered the director seat and ordered to change the title from The Aftermath to Invasion of the Mutant People. As you may have guessed, <laughs> the title did not change, and again, the project lost its funding. That, do that title doesn't make any sense. Yeah, Invasion of the Mutant People? Yeah, I mean, that sort of implies that they are one place and then going to another, which... I don't feel like I mean, it's true in this context. You put a little ADR in there and you can explain that the mutants just took over and that's that's where it came from. Yeah, but I mean, the whole story is like this post-apocalyptic, mm -hmm. I, I, I assume some bombs have gone off yeah. and then everything went to hell. Who knows? Ultimately, Barquette made the decision to produce the film himself with money borrowed from friends. Of the reported $150,000 budget, 21000 was spent buying back the rights and an additional 70000 was devoted entirely to post-production, leaving about 60000 to make the actual movie. Money was stretched even further when, after a screening of a rough cut in 1978, Barquette decided to scrap the whole film and reshoot with a new cast. Oh, oh God. God. Presumably, though, the parts played by his children and girlfriend did not change between versions. Or maybe that's the only change. <laughs> they were like, you guys are in it now. Barquette met with composer James Horner to score the film, but turned Horner down because he didn't bring examples of his work to the meeting, instead recruiting John W. Morgan to compose. Meanwhile, Horner had to settle for 1982's Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. Barquette pursued Roger Corman's New World Pictures for distribution, even cutting 15 minutes based on Corman's notes, but ultimately, the aftermath was released by its own production company, the Nautilus Film Company, named after the spaceship in the film. We open on a red sky, and after the title, it fades to blue, and then some credits, and then the sky is green. I don't know why it's changing color. Then, back to red, then blue again. Produced, edited, written, and directed by star Steve Barquette. <laughs> Picture opens in the stars as a shuttlecraft drifts past the moon and aims for Earth. This is the Nautilus. We see director Steve Barquette as Newman, concerned by the radio silence, and checking with the rest of the crew about the possibility of an issue with their equipment. It's got to be our malfunction. Unless, of course, all 725 tracking stations worldwide just uh, happen to be on the blitz at the same time. Yeah, well, do your best, keep trying. Newman is obviously disturbed to begin re-entry without having established contact with the Earth, and his radio man is certain there's no problem with their ship, the Nautilus. What the devil's going on down there? Dramatic music as we hard cut to demolished skylines and half-collapsed brick buildings. The few remaining humans appear to be running for their lives at all times. We see one woman in a thin purple top stop running and look around for a moment before running more. She'll play an important part later. Someone is shooting down at them from the top of a nearby mountain. 
Next, we see a red pickup truck overloaded with armed gunmen racing after the runners. When they have the runners corralled in a group, they bash out an older man's teeth with the butt of their rifles. The crew of the incoming space shuttle make the executive decision of crash landing in the ocean since they have no one to instruct a proper landing. I feel like yeah. there's still other opportunities before crashing into the ocean. Yeah, I feel like you would you would have a fail-safe runway. Like a salt flats or something. Mm-hmm. Well, but are, are they supposed to land in water? Like the capsules are supposed to land in water. But well, it's not a capsule. Yeah, it's, it's like a full-on shuttle. It's a full-on shuttle? shuttle, yeah. yeah okay. they, they would be landing on a runway. One of the men, Matthews, contributes to this discussion from the comfort of an amorphous void because he had to shoot these scenes before the set was constructed. So he's just like on a chair in a pitch-black garage somewhere. Mm-hmm. Probably Lynn Margulies' <laughs> house. Back on Earth, the surviving runners are all tied up at the instruction of Cutter, played by Sid Haig. He orders the women piled into the truck and the men shot. But, but why even bother tying them up and capturing them? Just yeah, that was a big waste of time. Shoot mm-hmm. them. Just shoot yeah. all the guys. That should be a standing order. The shootings are brutal and contain an explosive headshot for one of the kills, and all the women scream in terror. As the shuttle re-enters orbit, they experience some atmospheric turbulence, which heats the craft to a dangerous level and causes electrical shortages. They lose control of the steering and cannot slow the ship in its descent. A miniature shuttle crashes down in a dark ocean, and by morning, pieces are washing up on shore. This ocean was actually the backyard pool of Sarah actress Lynn Margulies' dad. Newman is also thrown about the beach's rocks by large waves until he manages to climb above them. This actually looks like a dangerous stunt. Yeah, but I guess when you're the writer, director, producer, (laughs) you're your own stuntman also. If this beach looks familiar, this is actually not the first time we've seen a space shuttle wash up here. Any thoughts? Planet of the Apes? Escape from Planet of the Apes? There you go. (laughs) Which is the same beach from Planet of the Apes. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, this whole movie is kind of very Planet of the Apes-esque. Yes, very much. Narration tells us that the craft left a trail in the sky, but nobody responded to the crash. The beach rocks are almost too steep for him to scale. When he thinks he spots some sunbathing beachgoers, he climbs down to speak with them, but learns that they are, in fact, rotting corpses. The image reminded me of parts of the recent Shyamalan film Old, about people aging impossibly fast on a beach surrounded by steep rock faces. Newman rifles through their belongings for supplies and inexplicably finds a can of kerosene <laughs> and a huge machete. Yeah. Why did you bring this to the beach? Like, <laughs> just with a marker on the yeah. side. Yeah, kerosene. exactly. In case you needed to know. Yeah. But yeah, like a machete, like, because these people were clearly there before. Yeah, they're wearing swimsuits. Mm-hmm. They're sunbathing. You don't take a machete to the beach? Maybe I should. <laughs> for all that foliage you have yeah. to cut down. <laughs> He also notices a radio, but confirms the earlier finding that there are no terrestrial signals to receive, which I might have blamed at the moment on the geography of this beach. Mm. He also says, uh, a radio, my first attempt to communicate with the outside world, is like, that's not how those kinds of radios <laughs> yeah, work. you can't communicate <laughs> this. one this. way. Yeah. <laughs> also, you just tried a second ago from space. It didn't work, so it's not your first attempt. He walks the beach some more and then spots another member of his flight crew, Matthews, still alive in the water and drags the man to shore. I guess Williams is just dead, though. Yeah, We we never find him. Together, they climb the rocks but stop halfway to camp for the night. Someone notices their campfire on the rocks. In the middle of the night, their camp is raided by either mutants or men wearing bizarre masks who wake their prey by stepping on every noisiest twig they can (laughs) find on the way to the camp. The astronauts do a good job of fending for themselves, cutting off one of the mutants' arms and setting the other on fire. The severed arm is actually a reused prop from 1971's The Corpse Grinders. How hard could it have been to make another arm? Mm -hmm. It's just a sleeve with a glove in it. It, Like you're going to the prop store. He's like, do you have any severed arms? Yes, yes, we do. And Severn Darden picks picks his head up. I have two of them. Not not you, Severn Darden. (laughs) As they crest the hill in the morning, they find a matte painting of the demolished city. Instead of having these characters talk to each other, Newman tells us in voiceover that he predicts this is the aftermath of the inevitable World War III. The only thing that confused them was the complete absence of people after the mutant attack. They climb the Hollywood Hills in search of a radio station. Newman leaves Matthews outside the locked gate with a wounded knee. When he busts his way in, he finds the station littered with garbage like a hoarder's episode and a dead guy leaning on a tape player at the desk with his hand on the button as if he just finished recording something with his last ounce of strength. But this guy is like pristine. Like he's yeah. got to be freshly dead. Yeah. Like you guys he missed him by like a, a day. 
Yeah, I, I kept waiting for him to get, get up. up. Yeah. <laughs> Newman decides to take a listen. It's been 32 days since I was last outside. For all I know, there may not be anyone left out there to hear what I'm about to record. I recognize the voice immediately. Immediately, yeah. immediately, I was like, "Because well, that's not the guy there. Nope, <laughs> that's a guy I know very well." Yes, that is the voice of the inimitable Dick Miller on the microphone. Presumably, that means the corpse here is supposed to be Dick Miller, but it's definitely not. He explains that nuclear blasts have destroyed every major city, but surely whoever was going to discover this reel-to-reel player would already know that. It's like he was recording this specifically in case any arriving astronauts <laughs> need to be brought up to speed. <laughs> the recording also makes reference to his desire to remain hidden where they can't find him. I wonder what he meant by they. We get another short clip of Cutter and his men killing survivors in the city. We get an establishing shot of a mansion in the hills, which reminded me of the house from 1980's Beyond Evil, which we covered in a minisode review, but it's not the same place, but it's in the same neighborhood. This Mulholland mansion is named Castillo del Lago and actually belonged at the time to Ted V. Mickles, the one-time rights holder of the film, who demanded a title change until Barquette bought the script back. He let them shoot at his house, so that's nice, Hmm. since they had no money to work with anyway. Mickles had previously directed titles like The Corpse Grinders. So did he have the arms Probably, out? <laughs> yeah. They probably just stole it from his house. Yeah. While they were there, they yeah. ooh, an arm. Perfect. <laughs> we'll need this. This is a tool that we can use later. <laughs> Mickles had previously directed titles like The Corpse Grinders and later this season, Ten Violent Women. In the early 90s, the home was purchased by Madonna and fully remodeled. That'd be funny for her to watch the aftermath and be like, are they in my fucking living room? Is what? that the arm that I had on the shelf over there? <laughs> Who took my arm? Oh, wait, this was shot a long time ago before I owned this house. Oh, I'm just thinking that the arm was there when she bought it. They returned so they the left arm. It? They left it the After they used okay. it, they returned the right. arm and he sold it with the house. Perfect. Matthews and Newman install a security system on the roof of their new mansion. They sweep out the entry hall to declutter, including removing a full-blown Halloween store human skeleton in the doorway. Like, <laughs> someone just died and evaporated here in the doorway. Well, and, and I was like, was this somebody's house that they knew? Or like, no, was this their this house? Like, this, one. This, this is the house we've chosen. Yeah. Newman starts doing three times daily broadcasts from within the house. He doesn't provide any helpful information, except that he's in L.A. and alive, presumably to draw the attention of hordes of crazed murderers. <laughs> This isn't going to help you in any way, or anyone else. After the first such broadcast, we delve into his backstory. Turns out, he is hardly phased by the transformed planet because his wife and child died five years ago. Matthews is happy for Newman that he's coping so well, but he's having a hard time. We see lots of collapsed LA landmarks in miniature and paintings. A small Geiger counter clicks in a field, and Newman rushes to collect it and take shelter in a building as a multicolor storm takes shape overhead. He has to shoot the lock off the door to get in and continue sweeping the room for radiation. These shots of the storm forming like are pretty poorly intercut with shots of him where they clearly aren't Mm -hmm. colored the same way in any way. So it's like, oh, it's all flashing red. And then back to him, it's a bright, sunny day. Yeah, wrong color. (laughs) When he finally turns around, he comes face to face with a stegosaurus and then other dinosaurs before we realize he's in a museum. They all look like they're made of paper mache, yeah. though. <laughs> they do. I thought for a moment that they were done forced perspective or, oh, okay. or, or yeah, comped no, in. I because they are. I think they might be. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think they're comped in. Okay, yeah, yeah because I was like, they're, they're so oddly shaped. It's like no, no one would have these. Right. Someone had to have made them. And if you made them this big, then the detail would be better. Mm-hmm. He lays down for a nap, and we see a flashback to his married life. The family walks together, but his wife and child stay behind and then slowly walk backward away from him until they disappear, and he continues somberly without them. The actress playing the wife here is actually camera assistant Carol Scott. In a dark room, he's approached by two hooded characters, an adult and child, and when they get close enough, he can see their faces are the same mummified papier-mâché heads of the people on the beach. He wakes up and explores the library with a flashlight when he's suddenly shoved from behind by a young boy. We learn quickly that the boy, Chris, and the museum's curator have been living here during the apocalypse. The curator is being played by Forey Ackerman, and the child, Chris, is being played by writer, director, editor, producer, lead actor Barquette's own son. So, writer, producer, director, father. Right. In typical Ackerman style, the curator is seen wearing a famous screen-used prop ring on each hand. 
One, the Scarab Ring from Karloff's 1932 Mummy, and the other is Lugosi's Dracula Ring from the 1931 film. He's wearing both of them in this scene. The curator gives Newman a tour of the museum, starting in ancient times and leading to the current situation, seeming to blame a virus and not nuclear bombs for the state of things. Though later we'll learn it's like a combination. Like well, there were nuclear bombs and biological warfare and I think viruses he was saying, and, when he was talking about like these incredibly small things destroying us, I think he was talking about like atoms splitting. Oh, okay. It's what, it was, that was my interpretation. Well, I it. feel like they talk about biological warfare too, though. Yeah. This is such a casual encounter, though, considering yeah. these are, like, the first people that mm -hmm. he's found alive. And he's just like, oh, hey, how's it going? Let's go walk around your museum. Yeah. I wonder, has it ever struck you uh, strangely paradoxical that in the end it was the, the smallest things that did us in? Tiny little invisible particles we couldn't even see by the naked eye? <laughs> Destroyed by atoms and germs. What irony. If this is about germs, then Newman should probably mention how many of the Halloween store mutants he's been grappling with this weekend. We cut back to Purple Shirt Girl, whose name we'll eventually learn is Sarah, and she's cornered in a shack by Sid Haig as Cutter. Do you guys recall the last Cutter we saw? Cutter's Way? Who played him? It was, um, who was it? It's John Hurd. That's right. Uh, but I, I thought we were going to say Toe Cutter. Oh, okay. That was even further back. Yeah. Do you remember Toe Cutter? No. It's Mad Max. Cutter shoves Sarah down and straddles her on a floor mattress. She fights back against him and eventually grabs at a shattered bottle beside the bed and slashes his face with it. While he rolls off, she runs out the door and he fires a shot after her. Back at the museum, the curator says he wants to build one last exhibit to show the fall of mankind, but he won't have time now because he's dying. He waves a bloated and bruised hand as a clear indicator of the cause of death. You're an astronaut, Mr. Newman. I don't suppose I have to tell you what that means what does that have to do he's not a doctor ah yes the moon flew <laughs> somehow newman knows exactly what he means and the curator has a mini heart attack before wandering out of the room and the child who is not related to either man is wordlessly transferred to newman's inventory so is okay am i supposed to know what's wrong with him no is yeah. it radiation? Is that what he's pointing to? Because his hand is all... I funny. don't know. Yeah, he's he really hurt his hand. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I fell and I hurt this hand so bad that I'm going to die now. Well, I mean, I think that... As an astronaut, you can tell what a hand injury is. <laughs> no, but I think the astronauts would be familiar with, you know, radiation issues. Maybe. Yeah. It's weird that it just affected one hand. Yeah. Like, did you just stick a hand out the door during one of those <laughs> rainbow storms? <laughs> He was trying to close the shutter. Yeah. He kept having to reach out for it. It's like, keeps slipping. Chris knew that he would never see the curator again. He'd never known his parents. And most of his life had been spent in loneliness. What happened to his parents? Also, yeah. how long has this been going on? I don't think it's been years. They've this been, kid how is long too have... old for the space mission to have been going on the entire time. No, I don't think it has. But so like, where did the curator find him? Was this just a Basil E. Frankweller situation? He was hiding in this museum yeah. when the bombs went off? But that guy was only like, he's like, he hadn't been outside for 33 days. So it's probably been a month at yeah. most that this has been going on, right? Because they weren't in space that long. Well, I mean, he long. wouldn't have spent three days in the radio station if the bombs hadn't already gone off. So it's been at least 33 days, I would say. Yeah, well, that's but what I'm saying. But probably more like a month and a half. But still not, lo but not, not long, long enough, enough for, for Chris to be to, 12. To never yeah. know his parents. Yeah. <laughs> a few days later, we see Newman taking Chris on a random salvage run around the city. When packing supplies, Chris suggests bringing along a big rusty pan. And Newman thinks it's a terrible choice, but pretends it isn't to cheer the kid up. <laughs> he didn't think it was. The kid wasn't sad until he turned down his idea. <laughs> right, yeah. Gotta spend gas to find gas. <laughs> oh, wait. No, you don't. Walk and find shit. Yeah. Don't waste gas in a huge walkable suburb, you dolt. Later, they've at least parked their green Jeep somewhere and go for a short walk. As they wander, they come upon a second red Jeep in decent shape. A gun barrel is extended from a nearby window and pointed in their direction. Okay. So that's, I got confused. I did too. You thought too. it was their Jeep changing color? I, yeah. I was I like, did. when does a Jeep keep changing color? <laughs> I thought the, the sky does thing. it. Why would, <laughs> did you know a Jeep isn't actually green? It's, it's a reflection of the sky. Wow. No, that's the ocean and blue. That's what people say. <laughs> also not true. A gun barrel is extended from a nearby window and pointed in their direction. The weapon fires a couple times and Newman dives to the ground to drag Chris behind cover. Newman digs a revolver out of his backpack to shoot back and the kid notices that the first shot from the stranger has shattered the pan he brought and saved Newman's life. 
Newman fires back into the window at the shooter and then rushes the building. Pan shot. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's great. Pan shot! That's my favorite part of that whole movie. <laughs> so just him running, pan shot, ding, ding. Inside, we see a person aiming out the window until Newman creeps into the room and, despite moving very slowly, pays no attention to where he's stepping and slips on a couple bullet casings. Yeah, they're not even bullet casings. They're, they are unloaded bullets. Are they, they really? They still have the, bullet still have in the them. bullets yeah. in them. And he fires his own gun into the ceiling. The shooter spins around, but he grabs the barrel of their gun, and after a brief wrestling match, he realizes the shooter is a woman. In fact, it's Sarah. She explains she opened fire because she assumed he's one of Cutter's men, but Newman assures her he is not affiliated with Cutter. He gives her the rifle back and introduces himself. She tells him Cutter is a maniac with a whole gang of cutthroat murderers. He kills all men and assaults all women, so she escaped. But he's always on her heels. So they sit here and chit-chat for quite a while. Yeah. When the kid like, outside. The second that you know that she's not a danger, you'd be like, uh, you you know that kid that you were shooting at? We should probably go get him because yeah. I left mm-hmm. him alone by the Jeep. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you were one of Cutter's men. There's a horde of maniacs outside trying to murder me. You know where, you, where your kid is? <laughs> Newman offers her a place in his brand new mansion. Outside, Chris notices that the coast is not entirely clear and more of the radiation mutants chase him away from his hiding place. Also, isn't it Matthew's mansion? So here's Matthews staying at the mat. All of a sudden he starts coming in with a whole bunch of other people. It's like, dude, what are you doing? We don't have any supplies. Yeah. You just can't keep bringing people here. Yeah, but well, Matthews isn't helping. Fuck that guy. He's just chilling. We'll see him later just like sorting the board games in a closet. I'm like, what are you <laughs> fucking doing? Help. Chris calls to his would-be guardian. He races out to rescue the boy. Sarah takes a shot from the window again and drops the nearest mutant to Chris. Another attacker jumps off a roof to tackle Newman to the ground while Sarah shoots more of the monsters. Sarah jumps in the red Jeep, which apparently is her conspicuous vehicle, and drives away back to their neighborhood where a rainstorm drizzles on the house. So she has a bright red Jeep, a brand new bright red Jeep, and she parks it right outside the building where she's sleeping. And she expects no one to find her when everything else is like rotted away and decomposed in the whole town. It's been a month. <laughs> I guess. Newman wanders into Sarah's room while she's napping, but she wakes and asks him to stay before disrobing fully. He carries her to the bed, and we dip to black to skip the lovemaking. A loud crack of thunder wakes Newman later, and he steps out to check on Chris. Chris admits that he's scared of thunder, and Newman tells him about a time he was scared of a bully as a kid. And eventually, he decided to fight back, and they were both beaten bloody, and the fight was a draw. So what does this mean about the thunder? Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's just saying... Go punch that thunder in the yeah. face. Yeah. Just thunder the thunder until you're both bloody. <laughs> I also like that he is like, he's like uh, I'm going to have a little drink while I'm sitting here. Yeah. <laughs> he just pours himself some booze. He launches right from that story into the drunk driver that killed his wife and child. Just a typical late night you having trouble sleep and chat with a 10-year-old kid. <laughs> Five years ago, my wife and son died. A lot of drunk kids crashed into the back of Molly Park to the line. The doctor at the emergency room wouldn't render aid to them until I got there to sign a release. I'm not going to say that didn't happen with the American healthcare system, but I'm pretty sure an ER doc won't just let a patient die because they needed a signature first. They'll just build the family into generational poverty for having the audacity to be injured. They wouldn't be like, I'm sorry, I need your husband to sign this piece of paper before you don't die. Chris asks him about his Stegosaurus necklace, and he says it was a gift from his son, which he keeps for the memory, but maybe someday he'll pass it on to Chris. Sarah hears this whole speech from around the corner, and she backs away when it's over, heartbroken for the man. We cut back to Cutter's men, finding another carload of survivors who are still excited to be found so far. We hadn't heard your call for help on that radio. Probably would have never stumbled onto you. Now we're here. We're going to take real good care of you. Looks a lot like the Vasquez Rocks area where they're shooting this part. Cutter and his men turn on a dime, tearing off the mother's clothes and shooting her kids point blank in the face. I'm having trouble navigating the tonal shift from the Newman half of this story, which feels like that Doomsday Machine movie, to the Cutter half, which is closer to Last House on the Left territory, but somehow darker with more copious child murdering. We cut to L.A., still destroyed. Weeks later, (laughs) Newman finally gives Chris a gun. I decided to teach Christopher how to handle a firearm. He was amazing. What he admired most was the child's understanding of the seriousness and responsibility of gun ownership. 
that this was a life-saving tool and not a toy. And that one day his life, or the life of someone he loved, might very well depend on how well he learned his lessons now. That's not any foreshadowing or No, anything. not at all. <laughs> Back in the mansion, it seems they're planning a raid on Cutter's stronghold, and Newman is literally assembling a laser blaster on mm -hmm. the living room table. Just from stuff they found. Yeah, you what know. is this? Like, is this just space knowledge? You yeah. just know how to make Astronauts lasers know how to make laser space. cannons. They know how to diagnose radiation poisoning, <laughs> and they know how to make laser guns. Yep. And they, they identify a fake stegosaurus. Yeah, while there's no laser guns anywhere else, yeah. ever. Why he didn't make two or three. Mm -hmm. Sarah is able to fill in some of the gaps in Matthew's intel, like the name of Cutter's second-in-command. I don't remember the guy's name, but I saw him. Gatman. Newman says if they rehearse this operation over and over about ten more times, that their surprise laser gun attack is sure to take the base. We cut to the night of the planned invasion. Newman and Matthews leap down from a rooftop while Sarah surveils the base with a laser gun from overhead. In the room where they expected to find the mother and daughter captives, they find only the daughter sleeping in a box, and we cut to Cutter in bed, forcing himself on the mother. He tells her if she doesn't cooperate, he'll take it out on the girl. Matthews runs the girl out of the camp while Newman explores more. Chris is left in charge of some kind of a bomb, I think, and Sarah spots another shed full of explosives. Newman gets his gun to Cutter's head and orders the woman out of the room. My baby. She's safe. Unfortunately, Sarah gets the festivities kicked off a little early with a laser blast at the unsuspecting guards doing their rounds, and she has to keep firing for a while to keep henchmen away from Newman. She takes out a bunch of the guys and then goes for the powder shack, and the miniature shack erupts in sparks, by which I mean it's a miniature that's mm -hmm. erupting in sparks. Chris's stopwatch reaches a specific time, and he flips a switch, which turns on two large halogen bulbs right at headlight level to lure henchmen toward what they perceive to be a car. I thought this was a bomb, even after he did this. Right. Because these two guys walk right up to it, and they're, like, petting it and looking at it like, what could this possibly be? Not realizing that it worked, and they, they thought it was what they were supposed to think. But when they get there, they're perplexed. This car isn't going to get them anywhere. Yeah, it's like, ah, you tricked us, you lights. We just yank it apart and throw it in the ground. Newman leads all the tied-up henchmen back to Sarah and is surprised to see Matthews was injured in the skirmish, a big leg wound. Since we never saw it happen, I assumed that it was going to turn out that Matthews was somehow one of Cutter's men, even though he was on the space station. <laughs> it's like, how did you get your leg hurt in the middle of this? Did you do this to yourself so that you wouldn't have to do work later? Cutter uses the distraction to sneak away. Newman fires a couple times, but doesn't hit him. We cut to that night as Sarah and Newman lay in bed together and profess their love to each other. I never thought I'd feel this way again. But I love you too. The next day, Newman and Chris head into town for a last supply run before moving to a new home to avoid Cutter's vengeance. Back at the house, the rest of the good guys amble about until they're found by Cutter and killed one at a time. Matthews is knocked out by Cutter and what looks to be a second man. When Newman and Chris get back, everyone is dead except the lightly dazed Matthews. He finds Sarah naked in bed with her face bloodied, suggesting Cutter had his way with her one last time before killing her. He kisses her and cries on her body. Last, he finds the mother and daughter, and we get this prolonged shot of him carrying the dead girl through the house in his arms. Oh my god, it lasts forever. Mm -hmm. The girl, by the way, also played by his own child. Matthews is obviously shocked to see what has happened when he was left in charge of protecting everyone. Newman gets to work polishing his guns. What are you doing? I'm going after. Chris warns him against the uneven fight, but Newman says that the odds are irrelevant and he won't have baby killers walking the streets unpunished. He lays the victims side by side, and then douses the bodies and room in gasoline, because what better use of fuel could he even imagine in this post-apocalypse? Yeah, also, uh, I thought this was their house. Yeah. Yeah, we live here. But they were going to move, like, today. Well, they were. I don't know if Matthews was. Oh, I thought everybody was moving. Uh. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone waste valuable fuel to burn corpses instead of power vehicles? I don't. Savage Harvest. Mm-hmm because he didn't want the lions to eat his friend. So he burned his friend's body with gas he took out of his Jeep. Yeah. Just feed the lions, dude. Come on, Tom, scare it. They don't eat if they're hungry. What? Wait, Wait no, the opposite <laughs> of that. This is why you would get eaten by lions. <laughs> don't worry, I read. Don't worry, they're starving. <laughs> Watch me climb into its mouth. Oh, close up behind me. How did he get all the way in there? He lights the pyre and walks out of the burning house with Chris by his side. Matthews tells him it's a suicide mission and begs him not to go after Cutter, 
Revenge is meaningless. No, Matthews. Not revenge. Justice. He leaves Chris and Matthews at the burnt-down house where earlier today Matthews allowed three women to be slaughtered by Cutter and company. I guess he's just done with these two. <laughs> we cut to Cutter's base where they realize out loud that they probably should have waited and killed Newman when he got home, but they assume they're in the clear now. Right on cue, Newman's jeep crashes through their barriers and right past Cutter's guards. Six to eight men take turns firing on Newman's open jeep and manage to miss with every shot. Cutter is furious. <laughs> Newman starts tossing out bombs to demolish henchmen and shooting them off roofs. Some of the men he kills in this sequence are also played by him because they couldn't <laughs> afford extra stunt guys. That's amazing. He's also, like, hitting them all pretty far away, like, sh shot after shot after yeah. shot. It's just like he hits three guys in a row in a roof. And then later he gets real bad at it. Yeah. <laughs> they also couldn't afford to fake shooting at the cars on this property, so whenever Newman ducks behind his vehicle, we get a jump cut just before what looks like actual shots being fired at the car, and then another jump cut before he reappears. Same for the windows of the house, which seem realistically shot out. More and more bombs are thrown their way, and one is even left in the shot-up car so that when they check it for him, a henchman is blasted into a pile of newspapers on the breeze. I don't know how we timed that one. Mm -hmm. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone leave a time bomb in a car to take out a bad guy? Oh, yeah, that was the, um, what is the name of it, though? Oh, you wanted the name. I did want the name. Richard it's the, knows it. It's the name of his gun plus another word. Magnum Force. Yeah, you I, was go. Say, I was going to say a Star Wars word. <laughs> These henchmen are lined up at a point blank shooting gallery and still missing Newman by a mile. Like he's literally just walking back and forth yeah. past the window frames and they're <laughs> shooting at the wrong window. It's like, guys, just look. Open your eyes. You don't have to give them a handicap just because you outnumber them. Cutter's right hand man, Getman, is not living up to his name. I can't find him. What do you mean you can't find him? He's one man, you get him! Newman jumps off a balcony and tackles two guards, kicking one unconscious and stabbing the other. No matter how many he kills, there's always exactly four coming after him. <laughs> Stop making me laugh. Sorry. <laughs> we see more real gunshots knocking out windows of an abandoned store. This building is literally just windows with like inch wide window frames and there's no way to miss him here, but they continue missing him for several more minutes. When Getman joins the fray, Newman is tossing off Molotov cocktails to form a wall of fire around his hideout. Eventually, he runs out of ammo and is swarmed by three guys until Matthew shows up with Sarah's rifle. Why did you come? I just did. And as suddenly as he arrived, he has dearly departed. That makes me think of, like, the porn version of those Apple Jacks commercials. Mm. Why did you come? I just did. <laughs> oh, God. Getman sees he has touched a nerve by killing Newman's friend and drives away. Somewhere in the abandoned downtown area, Getman climbs out on the roof of a skyscraper, and somehow Newman is right here with him just a couple yeah, floors why? down. They're suddenly in a completely new yeah. location. I mean, I didn't want more shots in this sequence, but yeah. explain this, please. Also, why is Cutter's base out in the middle of, like, the desert when there's obviously radiation storms and things? Like, you'd think you'd want to be in... A giant a, concrete pillar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The actor, Steve Barquette, does some insane untethered parkour maneuvers, jumping from one building to the next dozens of stories in the sky. This is not matte painted, this area. He just, he's mm -hmm. literally jumping from one building to the next building over, and he's at least 30 stories in the air. It's insane what he's doing here. This move surprises Getman when Barquette is able to fire on him from an unexpected direction. They trade shots for a bit because Newman didn't take his training as seriously as Chris did. Until finally, Newman gets the upper hand and shoots Getman in the shoulder. When he tries to reach for another gun on the ground, Newman shoots it away. He escorts the man to the edge of the roof at gunpoint and then shoots him in the leg, and then the other leg, and then the foot. Why don't you shoot me and get it over with? I just shot you three times. What are you talking about? Newman sees a flashback of all the bodies he found back at the mansion today, or yesterday, or whenever that was. We get an insane and unfakeable, for this budget, high angle shot of the two men continuing to punch it out on the roof of a legit skyscraper. Like, they're clearly shooting from the next mm -hmm. building across the street, down at the roof, mm -hmm. and these two guys are fighting without ropes, without any kind of safety net, and hanging over the edge of the building again. It's such a crazy dangerous shot that I almost forgot to ask how Getman, who just took a shotgun blast to each shin and one foot, is standing and fighting again already. 
Getman pulls out a huge hunting knife, since guns apparently don't work in this universe, and stabs Newman in the neck while pinning him down over the edge of the building. Newman knocks Getman back, and we get the most insane good guy kill I've ever seen. Smile for me now, Getman. The hero of our story has wrestled back the knife and stabs slowly and repeatedly into the man's chest. This is for Helen. This is for Matthews. This is for Sarah. And this? This is for Laura. Who's Helen? <laughs> Helen is the mother. And <laughs> Laura is the daughter. But they never say their name. No, no, but it was like Getman. That was oh, <laughs> That'd be great. He's like, sorry, which one's Helen? <laughs> As he's bleeding out of his mouth. As he withdraws the blade for the Laura stab, he twists the knife in the man's chest cavity. And then he buries it in Getman's eye before standing to walk away. I don't know why Getman got such an epic kill over the actual main villain coming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But now we dissolve back to the burned down mansion, and it turns out that not only did Matthews let Cutter's friends rape and murder everyone here earlier, but he left Chris alone at the same house where all that happened. <laughs> I thought for sure he'd be waiting in a car. Yeah, yeah. The, the, at, he's at the house, which is also now burned yeah, down. Yeah, he can't even go inside. He just has to stand in the driveway and hope that anyone comes back. Well, where is he? Sarah. And that means he's dead? Yes. Newman and Chris hop in their Jeep and drive off into the desert together, presumably setting up a sequel. But nope, we get one final scene. They stop for a break in the middle of nowhere and try to have another heart-to-heart -heart when Newman's heart explodes with a gunshot blast, and we see that Cutter has fired on him from some far-off bushes. Newman shoves the boy away and tells him to run. I was like, how did Cutter get here? There's no other car, and they drove here doesn't make sense unless he was like cape fearing it he was oh maybe the yeah. jeep the whole time yeah <laughs> cutter struts up to finish the job newman lamely tosses a knife at cutter and it falls uselessly to the dirt cutter takes aim but before he can shoot nothing the shot isn't interrupted he hits newman dead center mass in the chest and knocks him back into the dirt you underestimated me newman but i don't underestimate anybody Classically ironic final words from the madman who has, in fact, underestimated someone, in this case Chris, who has finally decided to defend the man who has protected him for most of the film. Chris hits Cutter four or five times, eventually killing him, and then Chris rushes to Newman. Newman, are you going to die? I'm afraid so. Newman assures the kid that everything will be fine, even though Chris will die in this desert later this weekend. Because he can't drive or fight or yeah. do anything, and he's in the middle of a desert. Yeah, this this isn't that. What, what was that movie where the... The, uh, the Earthling? Yeah, where he like raises him, teaches him how to survive. Yeah. Like, he's got no survival skills. Nope. He can shoot stuff, but there's no bad guys left to shoot. So you're just going to have to shoot good guys, kid. It's like, he, they, they still have a car. He could... He could figure out driving, right? He doesn't. <laughs> the world has only been over for a month, and the kid lived in a freaking museum. He yeah. has no skills. <laughs> but he could tell you all about dinosaurs. So could any kid. <laughs> <laughs> he has the same powers as all children. Newman dies, and Chris collects his stegosaurus necklace. This is so all we remember. He almost walks away, but then circles back to collect the gun that he just killed Cutter with. We see him walking slowly down a hundred-mile road through Death Valley. So I began my walk down that long road leading to the future. I couldn't possibly have realized at the time how Ryan Newman had been in the way he lived, the importance of the way he died. Love, honor, and justice were no longer just words to me. I would never be sure what death would hold. But one thing I did know, as long as I lived, Newman would continue to live also within me. And regardless of how long or short my stay on Earth might be, I would never be alone again. The kid's voiceover is actually not terrible and reminds me of the Daigoro voiceover in Shogun Assassin, which I believe was provided by the son of the guy who did the American poster mm. or something like that. That's the end. That's the, that's the aftermath. Yeah. That's invasion of the mutant people. <laughs> If you like. Uh, 
it's fun. It's it's stupid and it's really fun. And and I think what makes it for me is that Steve Barquette did this whole thing by himself and cast his children and his girlfriend and everybody in the whole movie is doing it for free or just as a personal favor to this guy who wanted to be the hero but is so not the hero type like I don't know he, he male pattern baldness situation going on and and he doesn't look super fit even though he, Jim Danforth painted him as like giant muscle bound mm-hmm. character on the poster art but uh it's fun I think I think it's fun and the, and the visual effects aren't terrible because he actually had competent people working for him yeah I mean I I think the the best thing is the matte painting. Yeah. <laughs> but, the script uh, is terrible. No, the script is terrible. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I found it pretty boring because even in the action scenes, everything seemed to go on forever. Yeah. yeah. The the two, when, when, <laughs> when he goes by himself to attack Cutter's yeah. stronghold, that scene is way too long. And then the fight on the rooftop is actually way too long. Even though I loved yeah. it and it was amazing. It, it needed to get cut down to just the most extreme, insane shots that they were getting. Yeah. Uh, too much narration. Like, yeah. Of, of, especially when it's, like, really obvious. Like, when he's trying to climb and, he, and he's, like, having trouble and he's just, I tried to climb, but I couldn't. It's, yeah. like, it's like, yeah, I'm watching you do it. I'm watching you not yeah. do it. Like, you don't need to tell me what you're not doing. And then they clean the cabin. <laughs> Thanks, Quentin. Yeah. Uh, not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I guess like you, we're operating under him that he has no explanation of what happened or why. Right. But the, the fact that he's so capable, like with everything that he does, like well, that was just men at the time. They yeah. didn't know how to do everything, or they pretended they did mm-hmm. until they got it. Uh, I I didn't enjoy this movie very much. No. Uh, <laughs> it was it, it had some ideas. I will say it definitely had ideas. Yeah. I think it gets a thumbs up from me just because of for $60,000, I couldn't have made this. I couldn't make this right now. And I have a lot more at my disposal than, than this guy would have. I don't think I could give it a thumbs up. I it, <laughs> I, I struggled to get through this movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a thumbs down from right. me. That's fair. I'm, I'm comfortable as the, as the lone thumbs up for this one. Letterboxd, where's this going, Jess? Uh well you made me feel guilty because I had it at the bottom the the really <laughs> hard the really hard part is it's your list you no, put I know, it where no. you want it I know I'm like JG Wentworth <laughs> put it where you want it. uh no the hard part is with these early films like as you as we start to throw more in there mm-hmm. like putting one above or below yeah can make a huge difference um so I I struggle where to put it even though we only have three on the list. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe I'll put it in the middle. I'm going to put it in the middle. All right. Uh, but it's still below Splits because at yeah. least Splits had some good music in it. Yeah. Uh, I also felt guilty and moved it up <laughs> from the bottom. Oh, I'm so glad I talked <laughs> this movie up on both of your lists. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Island of Blood is is whatever, but I guess this was slightly more entertaining. Well, than here's it. the thing. Island of Blood doesn't have the heart that this movie has. Like, yeah, sure. you know that the writer, director, producer, and star of this film all cared a lot about mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. because his house was writing on it. But also, like, he clearly cared a lot about this story, and he finally got to bring it to life. And and he didn't do a complete fuck-up job of it, considering the budget. So I, I think for that reason alone that it's a passion project that he cared so much about this movie and it came together and it doesn't have blatant plot holes or like such shoddy visual effects that I can't tell what's supposed to be happening. I I can follow the story. It makes sense to me. And, and he did, he did a decent job. I thought, and I also love that it's peppered with these little cameos from people who don't act. Um, and, and it's like, why is that person in here? I mean, we'll go through it in a minute here. Yeah. But um, just the fact that he roped in all these favors and clearly he must have had some connection to these people if they were willing to help him out and get this movie yeah. put together. Our writer, director, editor, producer, and lead actor Newman was played by Steve Barquette. Uh, this was his first acting and directing credit. I'm sure you'll find that hard to believe. Later he shows up as Sergeant Healy in Fred Olin Ray slash Jim Wynorski's Dinosaur Island. So that's fun. I love that movie. Story credit for Stanley Livingston. Um, he was Chip Douglas in 380 episodes of My Three Sons. Yeah. The music came from John W. Morgan. Not much I recognize, but I did see a credit for composing Starship Troopers 2, Hero of the Federation. 
The cinematographer was Thomas F. Deneuve. He also lit the last horror film, Puppet Master 2, the Star Trek TNG interactive VHS board game, <laughs> and a couple episodes of Ally McBeal. So good job, Deneuve. Uh, Denavi? I don't know. We need to find that. Yeah, the that. VHS. I feel, like, I yeah. feel like we've talked about this before. Still no, we talked about, uh, I think it was like a clue Oh, game. the clue. And it came with yeah. like a set of tapes, but yeah. it was also a VHS board game. I still want to find these. Yeah, I don't know if it's, if, because there's, there's one that's, there's a Star Trek game that's like Klingon focused. So like it's like a Klingon yeah. is in control of the Enterprise. Interesting. And he's having, he's like having you do missions. <laughs> The cinematographer here was Dennis Skotak. He has mostly effects credits on big-time stuff like Battle Beyond the Stars, Escape from New York, Galaxy of Terror, Creature, Aliens, The Abyss, Terminator 2, Tank Girl, Titanic, and X2, the X-Men sequel. He also consulted on Sinjinor, which was the sequel to last season's Scared to Death. Or I guess sort of a spiritual sequel. It's it's literally just a remake, but they called it the sequel mm. and they changed the title to Sinjinor instead of calling it Scared to Death 2. Lynn Margulies played Sarah. She and director Barquette were dating at the time of the film's production. I actually met her once outside the New Beverly and she signed my copy of the Andy Kaufman documentary, I'm From Hollywood, which she edited. She's also best known to me as Kaufman's widow, and she is portrayed in Milos Forman's film Man on the Moon by Courtney Love. So that's that the girlfriend character in this movie is the Courtney Love character in Man on the Moon. I think she signed it his broad, Lynn Margulies, and circled Andy's face on the on the back of the DVD. Margulies was also the editor of and appears in Kaufman's My Dinner with Andre parody, My Breakfast with Blassie, originally conceived by Lynn's brother producer johnny legend who was also at the new beverly that night sid haig played cutter he's captain spaulding in a couple rob zombie movies we had him in loose shoes for 80 and underground aces choo choo and the philly flash and galaxy of terror for 81 he's played a couple bad guys on the original macgyver but he's mostly appeared in a lot of schlock horror after the spaulding character he also shows up in kill bill volume 2 and bone tomahawk christopher barquette played christopher he's the son of the director and newman actor steve barquette Supposedly, Chris still has props from the film, including the Corpse Grinder's arm prop, but he broke the Nautilus spaceship when he was playing with it as a kid. <laughs> Forrest J. Ackerman was the curator. He was the founder of Famous Monsters of Filmland, who we referenced in Scared to Death, and who later appeared in Dick Miller's bookshop in The Howling and in our Patreon review of Dracula vs. Frankenstein. This part was reportedly offered first to the OG Flash Gordon Buster Crab and then Ray Bradbury on the way to Forey, and I commend Barquette for only offering it to these memorable personalities, mm -hmm. because I really do think it adds a flavor to the film that suddenly Forey Ackerman is in the scene. Jim Danforth played Williams. He's a special effects master who we've discussed most for his uncredited work designing the dinosaurs from Caveman, his stop-motion animation work in Bud Cardos's The Day Time Ended, and for designing the original Wonkavator, in addition to more animation for Clash of the Titans, and later this season, his art can be found in Conan the Barbarian, Creepshow, Megaforce, and The Thing. I've also mentioned that his stop-motion animation on the softcore sci-fi Flesh Gordon was nearly Oscar-winning, until the Academy decided against awarding any film that year to avoid giving an Oscar to a porn. Laura Ann Barquette played Laura. She was the daughter of the director and an accomplished producer-director of her own films. Larry Latham played Matthews. He has lots of television animation work on shows like The Smurfs, My Little Pony, Gummy Bears, DuckTales, Rescue Rangers, Bonkers, Aladdin, and The Tick. Dick Miller played Broadcaster. He was the voice of the guy on the tape at the radio station. He's Walter Paisley in a bunch of stuff. He's in almost every Joe Dante movie. We've seen him so far in Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood, Used Cars, The Howling, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hype, Smokey Bites the Dust, and most recently in Heartbeeps. Robert Skotak played one of Cutter's men and a mutant, presumably the mutant that loses his arm. He is the brother of cinematographer Dennis and has almost all the same visual effects credits on Roger Corman and James Cameron stuff. And as I mentioned, he provides all the film's matte paintings. Vincent Barbie played Victim. We saw him last as George, the cafe owner in The Blob. So he's just another one of the people that gets shot by Cutter and his men in the desert. I think that's everything for the aftermath. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintage video pod. If you enjoy what we're doing, consider giving us a review on iTunes. I don't think it helps our visibility, but it's good for morale. And if you really like the show, maybe you should join our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash vintage video pod for access to 50-ish 70s reviews and a hand in choosing our monthly 50th anniversary review. 
patrons are currently choosing between Blazing Saddles, Busting, Deep Throat Part 2, Deranged, Thieves Like Us, Sugar Hill, or Zardoz for a 50th anniversary review next month. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Zoot Suit, which IMDb describes like so. When barrio leader Henry Reyna and his friends are unjustly convicted on circumstantial evidence, activist lawyers Alice Bloomfield and George Shearer fight the blatant, racially motivated miscarriage of justice to win them their freedom. That sounds like a spoiler to me. Anyway, here's the trailer for Zoot Suit. It was 1943. As soldiers marched overseas, young people stepped to the beat of the big bands. And something was brewing in the streets of America. Flash, June 3rd, 1943. Serious rioting broke out here tonight as flying squadrons of Marines and soldiers joined the Navy in a new assault on the Zulu-infested districts. Universal Pictures presents a film by Luis Valdez. Put on a suit, a Sheffield real root. Look like a diamond, buckle and shining. Ready for This is a story of first-generation Americans. Where's the skirt? Here. Ah, hijo, where's the rest of it? They had the rhythm. They had the romance. Hank, I'm almost 18. We're going off to war, and I love you. They had the look. And Hank Reyna had it all. But one night, a twist of fate changed his life forever. Did Henry Reyna willfully murder no, Jose Sanchez? No. The DA is charging conspiracy, Henry! Are they willing to finish with a murder rap? They can't do this to me, is it? They can't lock me up! We got witnesses, Hank. Are you aware you're in here because some big shot up in San Simeon wants to sell a few papers? Has the jury reached a verdict? No court in the land's gonna set you free. Now listen to me, son. This case is going to be won. This is the fact. The fantasy. The music. The magic. The movie. Suit Suit. Suit Suit. An American original.